Wonder Things Studios proudly presents Archivos Insights, conversations with today's storytellers. You've tuned in to the Archivos Podcast Network. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Marie Bilodeau. And you've tuned in to Archivos Insights. Archivos Insights is a podcast featuring conversation with the stellar luminaries of the storytelling firmament. We're all striving to refine our and improve our storytelling chops. And what better way to do that than to ask amazing crafters of stories about their processes. That's how we roll. <laughs> that is how we roll. Did we catch you off guard there, Marie? I know it's been a while since you've done this. <laughs> no, it's because I went to grab my coffee and I realized it was super cold. And then my world just collapsed around me. <laughs> me momentarily i won't lie I, it wasn't you it was the drink everyone out there in the world is nodding their heads saying yes we know that world shattering experience of taking a sip of coffee and discovering it to be cold that you are totally given a pass and and, and not just cold like freezing cold it, it it hurts me in my inside places i won't lie to you oh, do you want to take a second and go nuke it or something no your warmth and enthusiasm will be enough warmth for me my friend good answer wow <laughs> This is how you rock. <laughs> Friends, this is how you rock the co-host chair on a podcast. Wow. <laughs> you are fabulous. Well, score. Score. Well, well, let me let me project some warmth and radiance to 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 heat up your your caffeine, Marie, and introduce you to our guest host for this episode. May I? Yes, I have been looking forward to this. Excellent. Move the coffee cup near the speakers so that they so it gets the full radiant warmth of this. We are ready, my friend. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Friends, our guest host for this episode of Archivos Insights is no stranger to the Archivos Virtual Studios. He has graced the guest host chair twice before, debuting in March of 2013, where you can hear what I consider to be one of my best stalkerish intros, and then returning to the comfy chair in February 2016. He has also co-hosted with me for episodes with Sean and McGuire a couple months ago, and in 2014 with Janet and Chris Morris, each time elevating and illuminating the conversation with his insight and experience. His literary alchemy transcends the notion of genre, weaving tales of weird superheroes, urban fantasy, YA fantasy, and what I like to call literary meta-fantasy. <laughs> that last is in reference to the ongoing serialized saga of the genre knots that weaves our guest host's exhaustive experience and boundless delight with story narratives with a fast-paced urban fantasy aesthetic. And really, that is one of the defining sparks that distinguishes him for me. Every project he undertakes is embraced with a, a marvelous two-edged literary blade with have as much fun as possible inscribed on one side and learn as much as possible inscribed on the other. And those twin mandates combine to create a potent creative experience for readers everywhere and have led inexorably to his latest writerly triumph. He is the creative lead in the development of his new story world for Serial Box Publishing. The series is titled Born to the Blade, and it's described as being Avatar the Last Airbender meets The West Wing. 
Yeah, wrap your heads around that for just a second. Yeah, you're getting excited. I can hear it. Born to the Blade releases into the world April 18th. That's in just two weeks, guys. And is the literary fusion of his own writerly fabulosity with that of Marie Brennan, Malka Older, and Cassandra Call. There will, of course, be links in the liner notes, but you can go to SerialBox.com. Now, that's S-E-R-I-A-L box.com. Right now, as you're listening, search for Born to the Blade and sign up to receive the first installment the instant it becomes available. He has been my good friend for almost five years now, and it is always a pleasure and a delight to have him on the show. Dear friends, please join me in welcoming back to the big chair here at the APN, Michael R. Underwood. Michael, you have had an incredible year. Uh, uh, highs, lows, in-betweens, a, a veritable roller coaster pendulum ride. And as always, I'm delighted to find that you can make the time to join us here at the APN. Thank you, man, for making the time. Thank you so much for having me on. I've become slightly busier because I now know in my heart of hearts that I need to find a blacksmith to commission that sword. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to add to your workload, but really, I think you kind of have to. Well, fortunately for me, I know some people who are into smithing, so... This does not surprise. This does not surprise. As, as I tell friends when, when they say, oh, tell me about Michael Arndwood, he knows why uh, 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 Agrippa cancels Capapel. So the fact that you know somebody that makes swords does not surprise. Well, it's only natural, considering the rocky terrain, that someone would attack with Capapharo and so on and so forth. <laughs> yes. So yeah, let's, uh, let's let's get into it. Otherwise, this will just become a princess broadcast. Indeed, indeed. Which you know, let's let's just put a pin in that and come back to it another podcast. But before we start the timer, Michael, I I, I want to acknowledge something that was recently announced in your feed. After many years of distinguished service as the North American rep for Angry Robot Books, you have left those hallowed halls to dedicate yourself full time to your writing. And I, I know you're not given to rash impulse and abrupt decisions, so I can only assume congratulations are in order? Yeah, so the it was uh, a great opportunity, and I am now two days into being a full-time writer, so it still feels very new, and I'm not, like, everything is strange, and I'm still kind of wondering, like, wait, didn't I miss a meeting or something? <laughs> um, but the the short story is that the, the leadership at Watkins Media Limited, which is the parent company for Angry Robot, uh, decided that they wanted to consolidate the sales team uh, because my position was a specialist position rather than a generalist position. It was the one that was eliminated. But I'd already been talking with my boss, Mark, uh, Mark Gascoigne, who's the publisher and managing director at Angry Robot. I'd already been talking with Mark about what the future would look like for me and telling him that I kind of wanted to focus more on my writing. So this, like the situations presented a number of, uh, to a number of friends and colleagues of mine, like Brad Bullier, Wesley Chu, and a number of other folks, this was just the opportunity that let me jump off and focus on my writing. And that's where I am. Outstanding. Outstanding. And, and as you say, you are two days into it. So, so the wealth of wisdom that you might impart to others as to what to watch out for and how to make the most of that transition is probably premature. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll come back and we'll have you back on in about six months and you can tell us about the rocky road of transition from from working the, the, the nine to five to working for your own self. Sounds good. 
Awesome. Well, let's do, let's start the timer. I Where the hell is the timer? God, my life is turned upside down. Uh, there you are. I have found you. Uh, <laughs> let me set the timer. We'll ignore it uh, because that's how we roll here at the Archivos Podcast Network. But let's get down to at least 20 minutes with Michael R. Underwood. And actually, Marie, I'm going to turn it over to you to start us off if you would be so kind. Yeah, certainly. Thank you. Um, Michael, lovely to chat with you again. Now, my first question is, now, it's been already two days since you've been a full-time writer. (laughs) (laughs) Marie, we talked about this. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. It's just my coffee is so warm right now, and I'm so happy. Um, So, I mean... You have a very uh, fun and distinguished career. I, I've loved watching how you uh, attack the creativity, which Dave has certainly framed in such a way that I think everybody can enjoy now. And possibly you'll have to show off that sword very soon, I'm hoping. <laughs> but let's focus on your uh, upcoming project, uh, Born to the Blade. And I want to start I want to start at the beginning here a little bit because a cereal box is something that a lot of people or or people who aren't aware of it right now go check it out it is awesome. Truly. And so how did it start for this project for you like did you conceive an idea and then found a team did you pitch the idea like give me that that creative beginning that little storm that brewed this wonderful tell. Yeah, so the actual beginning of Born of the Blade is probably 10 or more years old. Oh, wow. Holy smokes. Let's see. It has to be longer than that. I wrote a novel in the world of Born of the Blade in 2006. Oh, wow. It was very different. It was a pulp adventure novel about sky pirates. Cool. And... I'm like there. <laughs> none of the ma- like none of the major players of Born of the Blade were at all a part of that world, but most of the skeleton of the world was already there. This was a world of endless sky and dangerous mystical mists, where there is no surface. You go down, and then there's the mists. If you go into the mists, you'll never come back, and there are monsters in the mists that will come yeah. out after you. The reason that the islands don't sink into the mists is that they have this stuff, airstone in them, um, which repels the mists. And that's the setting. So this is a world that's great for airships. Okay, when you have airships, you get pirates. And that's kind of how that ball got rolling. And what made that setting special to me was how magic worked, because I I wanted to come up with a cool magic system. And I was already interested in fencing and martial arts and in language. So I came up with the idea of a magic system where magic is achieved by drawing edged metal through the air in specific patterns so that magic was itself a language, but it was a pictographic language using radicals. So I've studied Japanese and in Japanese, um, you borrow the Hanzi from Chinese and you have these characters that are phonetic and or semiotic, like that they they have a specific meaning, like, oh, this this character means mountain. So I brought that idea in so that I could have sword fighting magicians, because in a lot of fantasy worlds, magicians are not fighters. And I'm greedy. I want to have characters that are magicians and fighters. And that's really fun. Um, so that's where the world started. And then in 2010... Actually, when my now wife and I were, were first dating, the novel I was working on was the pre-pre-edition of Born of the Blade, back when it was a go-off-to-magic-academy YA fantasy novel. Okay. 
So several of the characters were younger, and the idea was that they were going to go to this place and learn Bladecraft. And it's gone through a couple of different iterations, so that by the time we get to the actual history of Born of the Blade specifically, I learned about book burners and cereal box, mostly through Max Gladstone, who I'd known a little bit at various conventions and just from me paying attention to publish the publishing world. So I talked to Max, heard a little bit about Serial Box from that and from other interviews that they were doing. And through Max, I reached out to Julian Yap, who is the co-founder and is the producer on the Born of the Blade series. So he and Molly Barton founded Serial Box together. And so I talked with Julian a bit. I was excited about the the model that they have in terms of especially in terms of collaboration and the way that they were approaching publishing not from the same perspective as everybody else, not just in that they were focusing on serial fiction, but in some of the other ways that they've done things in foregrounding audio and its importance and kind of having a, a tech or tech startup style orientation with the, the focus on the app. All of that was really exciting to me. So Julian invited me to pitch them some ideas. And so I prepared four short ideas and sent them to Julian and Molly, and they were interested in two of them to hear a little bit more, so I did that. So that was Born of the Blade and another another project that they ultimately passed on, and then they said that they wanted to buy Born of the Blade, and to buy that, that involves me making a world Bible or a series Bible. Fortunately, this is a world that I already had in my mind, (laughs) but because it's epic fantasy, even the 30-something page um, world Bible that I created turned out to be totally in, uh, insufficient. Uh, <laughs> so we've, we've had to add and add and add um, to the world material as we revised and reimagined things. I was going to say, did you discover that as you developed the stories or, or early on in the, in the production? So I, I knew that I wanted space in the world because I didn't want to come to the writer's summit with the, the three other writers on the, on the team. With a, with kind of a dogmatic stance, I wanted to to bring a world that was partially formed, but could definitely be shaped in any number of directions. Because I wanted everybody to have buy-in. I wanted everybody to feel like they were in really invested in the world and the story that we were telling together. Because due to my gaming background, you know, mostly tabletop, but also LARP, I had experience doing collaborative storytelling. And in fact, I have experience doing collaborative storytelling with Marie because Marie and I met when Marie was in grad school and I was in undergrad and we were in a Changeling the Dreaming live action game together. <laughs> Destiny, awesome. Destiny already nudging you in a certain direction. That's wonderful. Yeah, so we came to the, uh, the the summit, and during the summit, there was definitely stuff in the setting that we had to kind of sketch in, and then I added materials. And then as we continued the process, there's been more and more and more world, world building that we've done together, just because it's not it's not the kind of epic fantasy where there's one country. Like there's a number of major nations, each of which has their own history, their own culture, several different languages across this setting, uh, sartorial styles, sumptuary laws. Um, like There's just an almost endless amount of world-building detail that you can do in a secondary world fantasy. And we wanted to control that to a certain extent so we didn't get lost in it. But we did find that we had to dig a little bit deeper here or dig a little bit deeper there. So it's been an ongoing process that we kind of brought to a pretty good head by the time we were having to kind of lock in the 
the prose for the first season, but there are still parts of this world that we can explore and we can unpack. And it's what it's taught me is that if I were to do another epic fantasy with Serial Box or another collaborative approach, I would want to go in with so much more world detail, uh, bringing the, the other collaborators in. But ultimately, it still all has to serve the story and that we needed to get to that part. And we've gotten to the point where developing the world building is so that we can better tell the story, which is where it needs to get. Well, and I think that that really is one of the things that that, that fascinates and in some ways befuddles me about the, the the shared world collaborative process. I mean, you've got Marie Brennan, you got Malka Oldie, you got Cassandra Kaw, all stunning storytellers in their own right, each with their own aesthetic. How do you make the call between ensuring that all of those wonderful voices and creative spirits have investment in the story world, but also maintaining the integrity of the story that you're trying to tell. I mean, you were, you were the showrunner. That's what they call it, right? Yeah. And because Sarah Box uses a variety of television or Hollywood kinds of terms for things. So I'm the creator and lead writer and showrunner as a task is something that can be defined in a few different ways within the Serial Box context. But I was definitely the person whose responsibility it was to maintain cohesion and to have a clarity of vision. And for me, the balance was always knowing that I wanted to have my first response be to consider what others suggested and to make sure to not be precious about my own ideas so that when we're talking about something, oh, okay, so the way that I have it in the series Bible is that it works like this. How does that sound to people? Or framing it as, I initially had this, but really it, it comes down to what we think is going to be best. And always making sure that I'm not enshrining my own idea. I have to make sure to avoid putting it to the center. And within the process, we've really had not that many strong disagreements about which approach to take with an idea or, oh, what if we did this instead of that? We found a really good rhythm on, okay, well, what if it's this? Uh, yeah, but if it's if it's this, what if it's kind of this way of doing this? Or like a someone brings a different perspective or ties it into a different part of the plot. And then, oh yeah, so if it's this, then um, we can do, we can tie this thing and this thing in. So it was really kind of throw out a rough, spin it around, or throw out a different rough, take that, add something to it, pass it back. So it, it was really like accretion oriented that there wasn't a lot of just throwing things away or batting people's ideas away as they try to toss them in. It's been a really rewarding and positive process. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Michael R. Underwood after this brief promotional break. Introducing Archivos, a new story development tool that allows writers and gamers to document the story elements of their settings map the relationship between those elements, and then display those connections through three unique interfaces. One of those displays is the story web. Every story element is presented as an avatar with any related elements orbiting around it. It's a single display that illuminates the complete network of connectivity of your story world. Plus, like all of Archivos' display modes, the story web is searchable and filterable 
so you can explore the aspects of your story world that captures your imagination. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos. Your stories illuminated. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Michael R. Underwood. Well, and I imagine that was partially or largely due to the the professionalism and commitment of your your co-writers, of your team. Yeah, I think because, like, for sure, the fact that Marie and I go way back helped a lot. And that Marie has an anthropology, archaeology background. I have a folklore background. So disciplinarily, we have some overlap. And then... Malka has spent time in Japan and studied Japanese some, and Cassandra has kind of different types of martial arts experience, and Cassandra has an amazing flexibility combined with consistency in her craft. Cassandra can write a bunch of different things and still feel like herself, so that a lot of writers like kind of find a tone or they find a subgenre and really stick to it. And what I've seen in Cassandra's writing is that Cassandra just kind of goes wherever she wants. And she has low, uh, kind of loci in her work or kind of centers of gravity, but it's not just one thing. So there's probably going to be a lot of horror in a number of things that Cassandra does. But she's also written a werebear shifter romantic comedy that's just amazing and totally delightful. <laughs> um, so Cassandra has that flexibility and we all have these points of overlap with one another in martial arts experience or the things that we like and all these, you know, the touchstones of Babylon 5 or Avatar The Last Airbender or The West Wing, which I brought to the table. So we had a lot of shared language or shared perspective that helped us bridge the gap that we might have had on any number of disagreements. And who picked the team? Did you have a say in the in the team that was gathered or was that all from Serial Box? It was a collaborative process. So I pitched them a pretty big list of names because I wanted to have a wide set of possibilities. And I especially wanted going into the project, okay, this is Epic Fantasy World. I want it to be as inclusive as we can make it in terms of what scans to our our minds as racial diversity, gender diversity, orientation, and a lot of different axes of representation. But coming in as a straight white guy who only has a very minor kind of physical disability with my crappy knee, I knew that I wanted the collaborative team and the people who are making that world come to life to represent a broader range of perspective and experience. So representation was a priority for me in terms of having a inclusive world and an inclusive cast. So I put a lot of people of color on the list, a lot of LGBTQ people on the list, a lot of women on the list and not as many men, straight people, and so on and so forth. And I think that having some of that diversity within the team has really borne out and that some of the perspectives that folks brought to the table were perspectives I just could never have done on my own. The world is far better than I could have ever done on my own. In this world where you are born, like the ground, the, the physical ground on which you are born determines which kind of magical gift you get. 
And so in the development process at the summit, we talked about, okay, well, what if there's a pregnancy in this first season? And at the time, Malka was pregnant. So she was able to bring some of that experience. Um, there's, there's a primary source for you right there. <laughs> right. So like, lived experience in almost anything is going to be better than even some of the best research. Absolutely. Um, especially in terms of being able to write kind of right the embodiment of something or the the physical or social or emotional implications of something as kind of substantial um for somebody as like being pregnant and giving birth so it was a great experience cereal box provided some names as well i reached out to some people they reached out to some people the the building the room process actually took quite a lot of time because building the room the, yeah so it's the cereal box talks about the writer's room all uh, a television show Okay. And that then when we do the summits, that's kind of when we incarnate or localize the idea of the writer's room. Because in TV development process, you get a whole set of writers and they meet in a room together pretty often for you know weeks and weeks on end as they're developing a show. And that the ideas fly back and forth. And Cereal Box, um, especially with the, the kind of input of Margaret Dunlap, who's a contributor on uh, Book Burners, which was their first series. Margaret, who had written on various television shows, brought that model and her experience in that model to Serial Box. And now they've carried that across their other series through mostly Julian, who produces most of those series. And that that collaborative approach and the way that you think about things, like that helps me make the space in the room of my mind so that it's not just me having an idea and the other writers kind of executing my vision. It has to be everybody together. So this is a virtual room that we're talking about here. Right. We did meet all in person for a weekend. That was the writer's summit, but everything else has been online, Google Hangouts, Slack, and so on. It, it, sound, it sounds like collaborative alchemy. It sounds like you really achieved your goal of, of having that diversity of perspective and voice uh, uh, that that just came together beautifully. That's awesome, Marie. What, I'm I'm kind of driving the. Ooh, tell me oh, about I'm, this. Tell me about that. What, what else? What do you want to? What do you want to hear more about? I'm I'm loving the discussion. I'm loving the chat about the the collaboration and how it all came together. Now, when you were developing the story, so you've talked to us a bit about the ideas where where this story comes from, and like, was there anything that you're basically uh, as a creator, and you might not do this at all. So feel free to tell me now, take that out. Um, do you try to accomplish something with your stories on a creative end point? Do you try to accomplish something or is it just an idea and a character that you're following through? I think with Born of the Blade, because the setting I'd had in my mind and that a setting can accommodate a lot of different things if it's designed to be able to do so. You know, in one world, you can have a lot of different subgenres um, because life is a bunch of different subgenres. So, but put that on a t-shirt I like right? that. <laughs> uh, yeah there's there's a great quote about life is like a tragic comic something 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 um <laughs> so you can probably find several different quotes that are in that style but with born of the blade i was looking at a lot of grimdark fiction in the fantasy world and i was looking at the kind of political climate of post gamergate post rabbit puppies sad puppies and some of the other kind of cultural threads that I was seeing, and a distinct lack of hopeful futures in speculative fiction. There used to be a really strong thread of utopian fiction, and it felt feels like a lot of that has slipped away, or there's the sense of, oh, well, 
we're we're more mature now, so we can't have utopias or the kind of uh, an an a priori cynicism has uh, crept into a number of different discourse communities. And so that one of the guiding stars that I put down for Born of the Blade, like it was a uh, postcard that we put up on the wall as I was talking about this world and like what I want to do with this story and with this world if people are interested in, and want to buy into it. So one of those post-it notes was post-cynical optimism. And by that, I mean an optimism and a heroism and kind of the desire to have stories where there are people trying to do good things and that there are people that you can root for. Um, there are heroes and they are maybe fallible, but ultimately it. I want a series that believes that you can find a better way, that believes that a lot of problems can be resolved. And it's post-cynical because I, I don't want to pretend that there haven't been lessons learned from deconstruction in terms of characters, have, you know, oh, heroes with feet of clay or the exploring the darker implication, like the the, the nastier narrative implications of some things that come up in fantasy. I didn't want to jump back into a la la la, I can't hear you, Pollyanna type, types of fantasy where nothing is ever bad. And like, oh, it's just so wonderful that we have princes and, and lords and all power is inherited. That's totally fine. Yeah. Uh, princesses and dresses. Like, yeah, princesses and dresses. Super cool. Knights. Awesome. Big swords. Armor. Dig it. But like, there's lessons to be learned. Like, I wanted to take some of those lessons, but to not be constrained by the cynicism that frequently goes with them. Mm. Um, something I see in some grimdark fiction is everything is bad. It doesn't matter. No one is worth anything. Why does it even, you know, why should you even care? I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I care. I care so much. <laughs> like I am, I am all about caring. And I wanted to make a fantasy series where people cared in a really big way. They cared hard even if it led them down bad paths that they cared too much or that they cared uh, in different directions that they got then trapped by. One of the big things in Born of the Blade is um, the intersection and, and tension between individual character agendas based on relationships or things like that and national agendas that are handed down from these main characters who are kind of dualist diplomats. The agendas that are handed down from their bosses, from their nations, and characters that are caught at the intersection of all these different um, agendas and desires. But the goal is they will find their best way through and it will be hard and there will be losses along the way. But what I want people to get from Born of the Blade is a story that gives a damn, where people care and they're going to try to do their best to make a better world. That's really nice. I love that idea. And I, did, did you find that it impacted the writing at all, though? Because if you if you look at a character who's more grimdark, like you say, and they expect all the darkness to happen, and then a character's motivations where they're trying to push something positive forward or believe that there is a better way, because the, the character motivations must have been interestingly impacted to try to maintain that, that feeling while keeping a realistic world, like you mentioned. Yeah, the I think we did most of that work, if not all of that work, during the summit. We spent a big mm. chunk of one of the days digging incredibly deep into the characters. Um, we One of the other tools that Serial Box uses um, is kind of being a little bit more explicit about character motivation and writing a few things about each character down 
in a really concrete fashion so that you can refer back to kind of like RPG stat stuff. Um, and beyond that, it gets a little bit more like proprietary information that Zerobox uses. So I don't want to like <laughs> expose their, their secrets about stuff. Like if, if, yeah. if and Molly want to play those cards, then that's totally fine. But so we spent a lot of time on those characters. It was, okay, who is this person really? And what is their arc going to be in this mm. season? What role are they playing? Are they the kind of upstart hero that changes the status quo? Um, you know, are they the character who comes in believing hard and then has their beliefs questioned? Or are they the good person put in bad circumstances? Like those are kind of summaries of three of the main characters in season one. And we, the goal was to make these characters feel real enough and make them feel like characters that we could get invested in and that we could try to convince, we could bring the audience along and have the audience believe that these are people trying to do the best by the world and or by the people who they're responsible to. So that if you're looking at these main characters, they are characters, again, who, who care. Um, they care broadly um, and deeply, sometimes both. Um, you know, some characters care about a smaller number of people or things, but they care really intensely and other people, um, just make connections everywhere they go and then get caught up in a web of affection and positivity where they want to, they want to help this person over here and this person over here and this person over here, but they can't do all of those things. And I think by setting the characters up to be characters that are ultimately optimistic or have a drive for something that is positive, um, at least positive for them, and that they don't really have methods that draw on the grimdark toolkit for me. Um, that is the setup that we needed to make sure that the series would point in the direction that I wanted in terms of tone and theme. That's exciting. Those, those characters sound like characters I already want to know, and I don't know the first thing about them other than these broad strokes. And really, if you think about it, you know, characters that care about something deeply and passionately, that's a that's a major pull from a reader's perspective to invest in them. Not not exclusively, but it's certainly a, a major step in that direction. Yeah, because I think if we look at a lot of the major serial storytelling in television. So much of the greatest serial storytelling has a sense of drive because the characters have drive. Breaking Bad, I've only seen a couple of episodes, but it, it keeps on coming up as uh, something people describe as something that's incredibly character-driven. When you have driven characters who are going to be active and they're going to seek out ways to change the status quo to achieve what they want, uh, or you look at Game of Thrones where a character like Tyrion Lannister has something he wants from the world. Varys wants something from the world. Daenerys wants to change the world in a big way. We have all these characters who are not satisfied with this with the status quo. That's part of why a lot of uh, in a lot of narratives villains are really compelling because villains often seek to change the status quo and that puts heroes in the role of having to protect it, which can then become uh, problematic when the status quo is bad for a lot of people already, even before the villain comes in. So with Born of the Blade, we have characters, each of whom want to change a status quo, either to change a bad status quo or to create a better status quo for themselves and their people. So they have this sense of drive and they very, uh, very specifically drive the story rather than the story happening to them. Nice. Nice. Excellent. We are so out of time, but I'm going to ask two really, really quick questions. 
Um, uh, one, uh, the, the, the setup that you have with the, with the, 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 the main characters being the the agents of these larger forces. Um, will there be competency porn in these stories? <laughs> there will for sure be uh, amazing magical sword fight uh, competence porn. Um, <laughs> one when we were figuring out who was who was going to write which episode. Uh, episode four is called the Gauntlet when it has lots of, uh, lots of duels in it. And I was trying to be nice and like hold back, but people were like, Mike, you really want to write the gauntlet? Don't you? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I really do. Yeah, I really kind of uh, do. <laughs> so that, that episode is especially action packed um, because you have people with their different styles and their approaches to magic and how their personality is expressed in the way that they fight um, or the way that they use magic and that that's really important. And then you have people who are displaying their approaches, their personality in their social style, how they try to manipulate or cajole or in, in, uh, kind of implore and entreat other people to do what they want. So it's a lot of kind of passionate, smart people with magical martial arts skills um, coming to blows and or making alliances, alliances falling apart, trying to rebuild them, and ultimately being people caught up in really big events and trying to shape and drive them in the best direction they can. This is audio, so you can't hear this wide grin and the nodding <laughs> that I'm doing as you're talking, uh, but trust me, it was there. Second question, um, will there be heists and capers? <laughs> um I think the second season is probably going to be more heisty and capery. Uh, There, there are definitely, there's a chase sequence in season one. Uh, There is some sneaking around. There is definitely a big investigation. Um, It's not, it's not in the kind of leverage heisty capery mode in the way that genre knots is. So I would not come in with that expectation. It's much more a kind of Babylon five, um, important conversations, tough choices, and the magical sword fights. And the magical sword fights. (laughs) Come for the magical sword fights, stay for the magical sword fights. Yes, all the way across the board. Awesome. Well, the the clock has taken up a rapier and is sketching uh, three different languages all at once before me. They're glowing red. Uh, It's getting hot in here. I can only assume I'm doomed and we are out of time. Michael, as always, a delight. Dude, thank you so much, and and congratulations on the imminent uh, uh, release of this awesome, awesome story world, man. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been very fun getting to to share with all. The the big grin that you have is mirrored in in me. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Marie, uh, uh, wow. Lots, there's, there's a lot of story food in, in Michael's story and, and recounting of, of how this all came together. What, do you, what are you taking away? Oh, I'm taking away a lot, but I think it's just, it was amazing. It was just a big meal and I'm feeling very full, um, (laughs) which is good, but I still have room for dessert. But, um, I think the thing I loved the most about it was the idea of the optimism in fiction and also writing the characters in such a way that it doesn't become that old style of everything is awesome, but (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, is also awesome, but having them have a belief or have something character driven that, that pushes them more towards that optimism instead of having uh, everything around them to, to reflect their coolness back towards them, if you will. So I love that. I love that idea. It gives something to fiction that I, 
personally feel is a little bit missing in a lot of places. So I'm I'm looking forward to this. Me too. What about Me too. you? It's, it's like well, it's like yeah. sustainable, authentic optimism. It's it's not you know primary colors and 16 bit graphics. It's mm-hmm. it's you know, millions of colors and there's some depth to it. So yeah, I agree. Um, exactly. For me, as you say, there were many, many things. Um, obviously, I twigged on on the idea of of characters deeply wanting something and and being driven towards something. Uh, uh, that when I think of the characters that I like, that I am attracted to, uh, uh, having a goal and and hungering for that is certainly a, a strong motivator. But I think the thing that really I'm going to take personally for my employment in my creative processes is the notion of, of Michael's strategy of, of inviting a broad voice into Mm. the project, uh, uh, acknowledging the limits of a single perspective. And if you're working in a collaborative environment, then why not leverage the best that that environment can provide for not only for your story, but also for your own craft and your own awareness and, and moving forward, you know, it, it certainly applies to writing, but obviously with Archivos, there are a lot of collaborative opportunities in the future. And I'm, I'm going to embrace that as well moving forward to ensure that there is that broad voice. It's not this monolithic Dave-ism, <laughs> uh, which would not be a bad thing, but it could be better. It could certainly be better. So, all right. Although it is an awesome thing. No, that's a beautiful thought. I love it. <laughs> uh, friends, uh, you're digging it. I know you are. I heard you all the way across time, space, and the internet. Um, the, the awesomeness continues. In seven days, we'll have Michael back. We'll have Marie back. I'll be here. Uh, and we'll add to that mix, into that delicious, magical algorithm of awesomeness, uh, a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer who will set the table for a brainstorming feast. We will draw swords and engage in the gauntlet of the brainstorm. <laughs> it will be epic. Uh, but it will also be seven days from now, and I know that's a long darn time. Marie, help us out. What, what what do we do between now and seven days from now to make the time just whiz by? Oof. Oof. You know, it is uh, – <laughs> that's a tough one. You know, I, I, I thought maybe earlier I had a different idea because it was spring here, but now we're going into fifth winter, I think it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, just buckle down, my friends. Uh, but um, just – get it done over the next week over the next seven days is really commit to your writing commit to your craft even if that's not writing specifically and commit to it on a daily basis by doing something different even if you need to each day perhaps someday you're you're plotting or thinking about something perhaps another day you're visiting a museum that will inspire your work whatever it is but just commit to it make it a part of your life instead of trying to jam it into your very full life make the writing be a part of who and what you are. So you're, you're basically suggesting that they become a protagonist that someone else would want to read. Ooh, I love that. Yeah, and do it all in seven days, too. And do it in seven days. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. And I will tell you, friends, I always do, that you find what you're looking for. So look aggressively, actively, and, and with a drive and passion. Look for the wow. Look for the holy crap. Look for the waha in the world. And I promise you, friends, if you go looking for it, it's out there. You will find it. 
We will be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of Archivos Insights is copyright 2017 by WonderThink Studios and is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, Sharealike 4.0 International License. To find out what that means and how you can use this content in your own presentations, visit www.creativecommons.org. Theme music for this episode of Archivos Insights was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation, or just learn more about the Archivos Podcast Network, visit our website at www.archivos.digital and click the podcast link. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash archivospodcast and on Twitter at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at podcast at archivos.digital. Thanks for listening.